0: The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, we are, we are blessed. We are a blessed people. We are a small gathering this morning. And I think of the ark and the, the humans that were contained within it. Just a small gathering. And the first thing that they did when you allowed them to exit the ark was to have a worship service before you. God, our intent today is to, to do that as your people, to worship you, to, to recognize that we don't belong before you. We, we cannot come before you, for we are sinners. Just as Noah recognized and humbly presented an offering, knowing that a sacrifice of blood was required for his sins. So Lord, we come before you because you have done the work that allows us to do so. You have provided your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, through the text of the Old Testament, we ask that you would show us more clearly how you have unveiled more and more of this wonderful truth so that we can stand firmly in our faith, that we can walk humbly before you, trusting the blood of Christ to to bring us into and usher us into an eternal and ever-present time with you that will never, never end. So, Lord, we ask that you would join us here as we worship you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat, everybody. Church, as you know, right here in the early chapters of Genesis, we're in one of the greatest stories that has ever been told in the history of of humanity. God has given us a tremendous account of how He preserved the human race, along with all the animals, from the devastation of a worldwide flood that He brought justly upon the face of the earth. While at the same time, through His loving kindness, extended grace to Noah and his family by moving forward His plan of redemption For mankind. So let me remind you of what's been taking place in the early history of man. God, He created the heavens and the earth by the power of His word, as we first read about in Genesis. And all things that God made were good. But man and woman defied God, they defied what He commanded them to do, and choosing instead to sin against God resulting in their expulsion from the garden. And even though this was a a tragic time in their lives, it did come with a promise, a promise that God would make things better through the seed of the woman. And then subsequent generations continued to struggle in their relationship with God to the point where we got into Genesis 6 a few weeks back. And in Genesis 6, verses 11 through 13, we read, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. So this is just the sixth chapter in the Bible. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make the end of all flesh For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them. I will destroy them with the earth. This is where we have come to. But by God's grace, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And he responded with faith. Noah responded to the Lord's favor with faith, resulting in him and his family, along with all the creatures that could fit on the ark that God brought to Noah to, to be carried along on board the ark in this vessel of mercy, preserving humanity, preserving the human king, or the animal kingdom. God brought them through the devastation of the flood. And then today in the text, what we get to see is their time to now Disembark from the ark, to get off the confines of this large vessel of mercy. And it's, it's hard to even imagine or fathom what it would be like to get off of this ship after a year of being upon it, knowing what was taking place underneath the floodwaters, knowing what God was planning to do. The landscape of the earth would have been altered drastically. We still see evidence of the great flood to this day. Our landscape upon the earth has been uh, drastically altered because of what God did with the deluge of water. It would have wiped out the, the plant life too. There would have been seeds that would have re-germinated and, and populated again, but it would have been quite a scene to get off of this ark into this new beginning into this second creation in many ways for his family to depart. The big difference, though, between the first creation and what I would call this second creation account or this new beginning is that inside the ark was still sin because Adam, or not Adam, (laughs) I probably said that once already, uh, Noah and his family were sinners. And yet God, by his mercy, preserved their lives. Sin was there. Therefore, it should come as no surprise when I say Noah wasn't perfect. We we even, uh, Seth was just mentioning that he walked with God. We see that he was a righteous man, that he was called blameless, but he was not perfect. We will see during our time in the scriptures today that there was corruption. Corruption within him and corruption within his family. That sin quickly rears its ugly head. And brings about devastation in his life. And we share this with our ancestor. In fact, we share it with every human that has walked on the earth since Adam and Eve. This is why it doesn't take long to conclude that it is not what is within us that saves us. But it has to be something that is external to us that brings about the salvation of mankind. Noah was saved from destruction by God. So we have to look to him also to say God, we need you to save us. And this was all by grace. By grace we have life. Through God's covenant promises, we have a future. And this is the the truth that we'll be exploring in depth today, that by grace we have life. Through God's covenant promises, we have a future. And we'll go through the passage that Seth read, our our preaching passage today, in three points. First, recognizing God's grace. That's what we'll cover first. Recognizing God's grace. And then two, we're going to move to receiving God's covenant promises. And then the last point is going to be rendering our life to God's ways. So let's begin with recognizing God's grace. As I had already stated, the flood came upon the earth because of the wickedness of man. So here now, it is time for Noah to to come back out of this vessel, this vessel of mercy, God's mercy, which preserved him and preserved his family and all the animals. And what does Noah do? When he gets off, what should he do? I mean, what did we sing about all through our, our song set this morning? In verse 20, it says, then Noah built an altar. What do we use an altar for? It's, it's for worship, worshiping God. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered a sacrifice, a burnt offering on the altar he conducts this worship service before the lord offering sacrifices offerings this is the very first thing we see noah do this is not something that we have in scripture that god caused necessarily noah to do or or said noah you must do this to render honor to me but it is a right response and it comes out of noah a worshipful response I mean, what else would you expect this man to do after spending a hundred years plus working on this vessel that he finally can leave behind him? I'm sure it was still serving a purpose for him and his family for some time, but the last century was dedicated to this thing and it served its purpose and he came out. I mean, just picture, if you will, what, what it would have been like for, to be Noah and for, for God to say, go build an ark out of some gopher wood and uh, make it really big because I'm going to stuff it full of all the animals you can think of. And it's going to have to last for quite a while too because you're probably going to be at sea or floating in it for about a year. So what would you do if that was your assignment? Well, Noah was faithful and he did what God commanded him to do. And now here on the backside of that, after the flood that cleansed the earth, it's time for him to disembark. The ark did exactly what God said it would do. God had a plan. God carried out his plan, and he saved a remnant within the confines of that ark. And so there's worship. Worship before Almighty God. I can't help but consider Noah's Thoughts here. In his mind, he's thinking sin, violence, corruption. That's what God told me was the reason for the flood. And here I have been dedicating my life to building this ark. I've seen what God did. He brought the flood that he promised. And yet it was me and my family inside the ark. And Noah had to think, I have violence. I have corruption. I have sin within me. Why would God choose me to ride along in this vessel and preserve me and my family who are also have violence and sin and corruption in their hearts? He has to be thinking it's grace, it's God's favor, it's unmerited. I don't deserve it, and yet God gave it. He had to have th- thought we deserved death too. But by God's grace, we were saved. Our lives were preserved. So how else can this sinful man who has been preserved by God's graciousness come before a holy and righteous God? Because that's what we see him doing. He's coming before a holy and righteous God at this altar that he has constructed. And the most reverent way that he can think of to come before Holy God is to take animals and to slaughter them, to kill them and to spill their blood and to lay them out on the altar before God and say, God, my blood should be shed. I am the sinner, but will you accept this offering on my behalf? Will you take this blood offering, this whole burnt offering that I am offering to you as a sacrifice for my sins? Will you receive it as a, as a token of my worship, of my admiration for who you are? Blood had to have been shed. He, Noah must have realized that. Blood was required. And so he gives this substitute, not his own blood, but the blood of animals upon the altar, recognizing that God's grace was upon him. And so he worships God in this manner. Church, so often as believers, we are overcome at times when God's grace is upon us and and we're aware of it. We're made aware that I'm a sinner and yet God has allowed me to be a part of his family. He's allowed me to come before him. He's allowed me to join in with other believers on a Sunday morning and lift our voices to sing songs of praise to God with our sinful lips should humble us. And I know it does. A lot of times it's in the, in the quietness, maybe with your Bible open, or just considering the, the blessings that God has lavished upon you, that this wave of, of God's holiness and rever- reverence comes upon you and just drives you down upon the ground in worship. And that's a, a right thing to do. And Noah does this. He drops down in reverent worship. It's obvious from the scriptures that Noah is utterly dependent upon God's grace. And how much more for us with the the vantage point that we have standing here. We're not on the other side of the flood immediately being saved by the ark, but we have the whole of scripture that tells the complete story of what God has done to redeem mankind to himself through the blood of his son. Through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who grants eternal life to all who are saved by him, to the regenerate, to the believers. We're dependent upon God's grace as well, and we have this perfect example in Christ. Noah had a wooden vessel that he could turn around and look upon. We have the cross that we can look upon. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2. I know we recently covered Ephesians, preaching through that not too long ago. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, Paul writes, But God being rich in mercy... in Christ Jesus. Noah didn't have that passage, and yet he still worshiped reverently before God, saying, God has preserved me. By God's grace, my family and I are alive, and God wants to do something through our family. What? I don't know, but he has a plan, and I'm going to submit myself to him. By grace alone, church, we have life. By grace alone, Noah had life. So, in looking about where we are, knowing that we've received God's grace in order to even have life, we should consider how he is blessing us. And for each one of us, that's going to look slightly different. How is God blessing you? God has given you life, and he's blessing you with that life. Some of you with very young children. Some of you carrying a child in your womb. Others of you with, with uh, friends that are needing to hear the gospel. You've heard it and God's blessed you with that message. So he wants you to take it with you and, and share it. How has God blessed you? Are you focused upon what God has given you to live your life according to his grace? We should have a right response to what he's doing in our lives and and to worship in those opportunities. Throughout this section are are a number of of graces that are elaborated upon, and I'd, I'd like to cover them. They're given to Noah and his family and to subsequent generations as well. One that may not be fully appreciated, but it is of immense worth. And it's the reiteration of what we have here in the text that mankind is made in the image of God. That is an immense, of immense worth. And we should really appreciate what God is saying here once again by saying mankind is, is made in my image. He says that in, in uh, chapter 9, verse 6. Man is made in the image of God, which is what we saw previously in Genesis 1, verse 27, as well as Genesis 5.1 in the likeness of God. So here it is that we're made in the image of God. And why is that so valuable? Well, it helps us understand the fundamental aspect of how we interact with one another. If we look at another human and say, image bearer of God, image bearer of God, image bearer of God, that has an immediate softening effect upon us. It's really hard to be angry and upset with a fellow image-bearer if you think about them in those terms. They bear the image of God. God has created them. God sent his son to die for them. So it immediately has this impact of making society better. And in here, we have a law about, well, what should you do with a murderer well, a murderer is basically saying, I don't care about the image of God, so I'm taking the image of God, that life, and I'm killing them. And so God gives this premise of law and government saying, if someone is, is that flippant with what I've created to bear my image, well, then their life also is to be given. They lose their life because they do not have reverence for what I've created as the image bearer, my image bearer. So this is helpful for us. It, it values human life because of the image-bearing aspect. And we all recognize the merit of this type of a law, preserving the livability of society, not being under the, the threat of, of running into murderers. Because if everyone upheld this, they wouldn't want to lose their life, so they'd be more respectful of one another. So even though there's merit with what God's given, we can also lament the state of the justice system as we know it because justice is often not carried out. What God has given to us is not used in our laws per se all the time. It might be the, what undergirds our law system, but then there's loopholes, there's outs, there's lawyers, there's ways to get around paying the ultimate penalty. It's, uh, it's more common for us to see what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's what we're used to seeing. And, and this is corruption. And this is the corruption that, that takes away from what we know about God and what God has given us for a basis of just living. So I'll return once again, simply recognizing the image bearer of God in one another softens us, makes it so we cannot be hard towards one another when we grant that God has made each one in his image. And that is the ordering of human to human, but we also see that God gives us grace in in how he orders human to animal relationships as well. We have that in chapter 9, verse 2. God says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. This is a grace. God orders the way things are to be. And this is how it was in the beginning. And now in the new beginning, it's reiterated, saying all of the animals, all the beasts of the field belong to you. This is how it should be, how the world should be ordered. And additionally, God gives us the grace of being able to eat meat, which most of us find that as a a great thing to have. God opens up not only do we have plants to eat, but now in chapter 9 we get the ability to eat meat as well. While always being reverent to the blood. And we'll come back to the significance of blood shortly because it is a, a significant factor that we should look at in this text. We also see here and recognize God's grace in restating the blessing of being fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. We've seen it throughout Genesis. We see it again here in verse 1 of chapter 9. We see it in verse 7 of chapter 9. Be fruitful and multiply. Why does God want the earth to be filled? What is he after? I mean, this is a command that he keeps giving over and over again. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, he wants us, his image bearers, to populate the earth and to act as he does. We're his vice regents. We're made in his image, and we're supposed to behave like him. We're supposed to be just in our dealings. We're supposed to be uh, loving and tender towards one another. And we're supposed to be worshipful towards him. God wants that. He wants us to behave in that manner because that's how he's designed us to be. Of course, sin has its way. But that's why God keeps giving this command over and over again, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Do these things that I've given you the ability to do, and do them well. In, in all of these, we recognize that God's grace is given. In all of these areas, the very means to live, and yet, I'll tell you, we even have more. We have more than what's here. When we, when we receive God's covenant promises, we have also what's yet to come. So not only what we have to live on, but covenant promises help us see what's yet in the future as well. And this is our our second section that we're going to cover today is receiving God's covenant promises. And the whole reason that we're here in the text where we're at today is because God started making some promises. He started making some promises. Again, a a few chapters back in chapter six, verse 18 God starts with a promise, and then it's fulfilled in the text that we're working through today. He says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So it's God speaking to Noah back in chapter 6 prior to the flood. And then here in chapter 9, here's the covenant promises. It's continuing. It's continuing to flow from God. He's, he's pleased by the sacrifice God has made he's pleased at what Noah has done on the altar we read that in chapter 8 verse 21 and so then this promise starts to expand this covenant starts to take shape even more God chooses to do so unilaterally there's still sin in the heart of man that's still very much present that doesn't go away man's heart hasn't changed It's evil from his youth, we read here in the text. And this is post-flood, and God still chooses to act in such a gracious manner. Jesus even, when he's on the earth, he, he says something very similar in Matthew 15, 19. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. This is the condition of the human heart. And yet God says, I can work with this. I can, I can do something with this because I can redeem it with a perfect sacrifice yet in the future with my son Jesus Christ. So where does the covenant begin in earnest in our passage here today? Well, specifically we see it in uh, verse nine of chapter nine and going through verse 11. And it's very broad. I want you to, as I read these, these three verses, hear how broad this covenant is that God makes. In verse nine, we read, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, that never again, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Those are some broad terms. God lays them out in his covenant promise before Noah. Remember, man's heart hasn't changed. But this is a promise that God says he will fulfill, that he will do. God is going to choose to work with man in in a different manner. And this should catch our attention. God is doing something different post-flood than we saw him necessarily doing, to this extent, pre-flood. Pre-flood, he said, all this corruption, all this sin, all this violence, I'm going to wipe out. I'm saddened that I even created man. I'm going to do away with him. Post-flood, man's heart hasn't changed. God states that very clearly. His heart is corrupt from his youth. He says, I'm never going to wipe out all of mankind again. Knowing that the heart is the same, God says, I'm going to do something different. And this should catch our attention. Why is God showing us this grace, this amount of grace so freely? And why is he making a covenant with mankind in the animal kingdom that he alone has to uphold? There's no stipulations put on the animals. There's no stipulations put on man. God just says, this is what I'm going to do. God is going to do this. It's it's grace. And we have signs dotted throughout the passage that are of great help to us in our understanding of where all of this is leading. So let's look at the signs together. Look at the signs with me and let's see where they lead. Signs are put here for a reason. The first sign is God's reaction to the animal sacrifice in verses 20 and 21. What do we read there? After Noah does this sacrifice, verse 21, and and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, so God is pleased. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. God sees this, this animal sacrifice, and he's pleased. Doesn't it seem strange that God would be pleased about animals being severed, placed upon an altar, and offered as a burnt offering? Well, it's a sign. It's not that God is happy about animals. It's, it's God is happy about the condition of Noah's heart that he says something has to be offered to God, and it has to be something of, of value, something that had life in it. My life should be given, because I'm a sinner, but I'm going to offer up these animals instead. And and this pleases God. And it's a sign. The next big sign, I believe, is is found in God's instruction on the blood. In verses 4 and 6 of chapter 9, we get some instruction on blood. And in these three verses, God equates blood with life. And He's the creator. So I would think the creator of all the living would be very interested in what people do with life. He's the giver of life. So he wants life to be treated with reverence. So he talks about the blood and the blood of man. And he says three times in here that there will be a reckoning required. If someone sheds the blood of an innocent, if someone doesn't revere what they're doing when they're handling life, a reckoning is going to be required of them. They're going to have to give an account, a a reckoning for what they've done if they desecrate life, if they desecrate blood, if they don't honor what God has done. God, the creator of life, will not tolerate that which he has created being treated improperly, being treated in a way that's not reverent. So we see that as a sign as well. And of course, There's another big sign in this uh, account after the flood when Noah disembarks from the ark. It's the one we think of probably most often when we think of what's going on after the flood. It's the sign of the rainbow, right? God puts a bow in the sky. He says, anytime that I put uh, clouds across the earth and I see the bow in the sky, I will remember my covenant. I will remember what I said I would do. And as I was studying this section, I was surprised because so often we think, and we look up at the bow and we say, I remember, you know, as as a human, I remember what God promised. But God is saying, you can think about that if you want, and it's a good thing to think about, but I'm putting it there so I can remember. God's saying, "I I want to remember what I promised to do. Not that he'll forget, but we're reminded that God is faithful, he is so faithful. And he puts a sign in the sky to remind us of his faithfulness to his covenant promises to us. And to every living creature, not just the humans, but to the animals as well. So, so many of these signs here and what they point to is this term that we use oftentimes called atonement. Atonement. The word atonement carries significance because it, it helps us Define our relationship to God. Atonement is required when the human relationship with God has been, has been damaged in some way, when, when that relationship has been fractured. Atonement says that you can be temporarily restored by covering over your sins with an animal sacrifice. That's what we see throughout the scriptures. Atonement produces a, a purification of, of the human for their sins. And it provides a propitiation, something that God appeases God. So it covers over the sins of man and it also shows an appeasement to God when an atoning sacrifice is offered. And we, we get a, a glimpse of this. Even in the early sections of Genesis, we start to see atonement coming through the pages of Scripture. Earlier, when Adam and Eve first sinned, They knew they were naked and ashamed. And God does something. He takes the skins of an animal and he covers their nakedness with skins of an animal. So that should sound like atonement. He's covering them. But also that animal had to give its life in order to give up its skin. So then there's this propitiatory Uh, appeasing of God as well. It's not explicit in the text, but as we're thinking about atonement, we should look at that and say, what's going on there? What did God do when he said that if they sin, if they take that fruit, surely death is going to come in to the world. And the first death that we have recorded is of this animal that God kills, covering their nakedness and moving along. And then in Leviticus, there's a whole chapter, chapter 16, that's dedicated to atonement, the day of atonement, and what Aaron has to do, and what all of Israel has to do. And it's all about the blood, blood of goats and bulls that are used for atonement. These are significant, but we know even in considering our passage before us that God has given animals to mankind. We just were reading about that earlier. For us to rule over and to steward for food, to use in in labor. And God sanctions their use also for sacrifice. So think about that. God has ordered the world in such a way that humans are over animals. God is the creator of humans and animals. And then when we use animals for sacrifice, somehow they appease God's wrath for our sin. We should be left scratching our heads a bit saying, well, that doesn't seem like it should really work. Well, it's a sign. It's a picture of what a perfect atonement should look like. Something that only God can do. And we get that as we continue moving through the scriptures because truly the blood of animals cannot blot out sin. But it shows reverence to God saying, God, I I can't come before you without blood. So these animals are used in the Old Testament worship system. In Romans chapter five, chapter three, excuse me, Paul talks about what Christ does, knowing that we're all sinners. In Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's where redemption comes from. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we have redemption from sins by what God has done through Christ and what his blood was shed Another section that you can mark down if you're taking any notes is Hebrews chapter nine. Speaking of the the one who enters in by the perfect blood being Jesus. And we we bring these observations together and, and recognize that even from the early pages in scripture, that this is what the Lord is putting together through his covenant promises. Something better for the future is yet to come. A complete work The work of Christ that is unveiled a little at a time as we get the full revelation of God's word, of God's working. It's a complete work that is dependent upon God's grace so that we can live now through covenant promises that give us a future, a hope for what's yet to come. And this is really just scratching the surface of receiving God's covenant promises. Of great significance to our understanding of God is that He will often enter into covenants and will cause the covenant to be binding upon Himself. It should really just put us back on our heels to think that God knows that we're not a faithful partner to get into a covenant with, but He'll make the covenant anyways and He'll fulfill it. That's what we see throughout Scripture that God is faithful, He carries the weight of the covenant Himself. And thanks be to God for for being preeminently faithful. And a proper thankfulness and praise leads us to where we're going with our last point, and that's rendering our life to God's ways. After seeing all the good that has been written about Noah, most of which we have covered, blameless, righteous, and yet... Even from our scripture reading, we should know that he's not perfect. No man has been perfect except for Jesus, who is God, who took on flesh. So what is Noah going to do? I mean, he's, he's got all these great attributes. He even makes Hebrews 11 for his faith. So we know that that's, that's in good company if Noah makes it there. But after the flood, after the ark is finished... Noah's trying his hand at something new. When you live 950 years, I think you've got to try quite a few professions out. So he becomes a a man of the soil. He plants a vineyard. Vineyards are good for growing grapes, which you can turn into wine. Wine has enough alcohol content in it that can sometimes cause you to be inebriated. And that's what we read in the text, that suddenly Noah is faced with a hardship that was brought about by some sort of temptation resulting in sin from drunkenness. So what's going on here? Let's take a look. We, we heard it in the reading, but Noah gets drunk and he falls asleep in his drunken stupor and he's naked inside of his tent. And we probably think, meh, what's the big deal? We see mostly half-clad people all around us today. But it was a big deal. The nakedness of this man was a big deal. And for the other big deal was that his son Ham pokes fun at him in some way, shames him in some way. While he is asleep and uncovered in his tent, Ham goes in, sees this, makes some snide remarks to his brothers, and that is the disgrace. That is the sin. And again, we might think, well, what's the big deal? It was a big deal in this time and in this way. And I'll, I'll try to show you why? Because it's undermining what God established for, for parents to have a position of authority. So there is not an honoring of Noah by his son, Ham. He dishonors his father. And if you think the honoring of father and mother is a small thing, think again. Because in Exodus chapter 20, where we get the 10 commandments, there are a number of commandments that are about how we should react to, to God and how we should interact with God. But the fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. So this is important to God that He He codifies it in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments. He puts it right there in the middle. And what we see is this did not happen. It didn't happen here after Noah became a, a man of the land and, and planted this vineyard. So Noah has an issue. That should not surprise us because even as we interact as Christians today, we know a lot of times we have issues with one another. We're sinners, and that's, that happens. It's inherent, it's been passed along, our sin condition, from Adam to this very day. But as Noah ends up naked and ashamed, we're reminded once again that that's what happened to Adam and Eve. They sinned, end up naked and ashamed. He's in this compromising position. He's he's embarrassed. Ham doesn't honor his father, but dishonors him and brings disgrace upon the family. So he fails to render himself to God's ways. The other brothers, though, however, what do they do? Shem and Japheth. They hear about this from their brother Ham, and they, they take it seriously. They decide, you know what? We need to protect our father's honor So they drape this garment over their shoulders, a garment, and then they walk backwards towards their father, not wanting to peek in on him. And then they let the garment fall off on their naked dad so that his nakedness is covered. His sin is covered with the garment. Sounds like atonement again. So there's a picture there. And and so then they are blessed when Noah wakes up and he realizes what happened. He blesses his sons Shem and Japheth while cursing Ham and the descendants of Ham, Canaan. The Canaanite woman that we read about today came from the line of Ham. So as we read our Bibles, all of this starts to come together, doesn't it? We start to see this picture of how things, how pieces fit together. And the Canaanite people that end up getting cursed, this is like a prophetic statement by Noah, they end up being the enemies of Israel, the people of God. And they have to be pushed out, cleansed out of the land after their time in Egypt. So, as we think of the significance of honoring father and mother, I'd ask how are you doing in honoring your father and your mother? We can all probably readily identify with Ham, knowing that our, our parents make blunders, make mistakes. We can become that antagonist. We can poke fun at our parents. Or we can be more like Japheth and Shem and say, yeah, probably wasn't the best thing for him to do, but I'm going to cover my, my parents. I'm going I'm to provide reverence in the way I deal with them, knowing that I too have my sins. You know, some of us have been hurt tremendously by our parents So when we think of honoring father and mother, it might become a very difficult task. But it is given here to us as something that God values. So whether it's for the younger kids, thinking about honoring father and mother, or for us who still have parents that are are living, knowing that maybe they have done damage to us or continue to do damage to us. And yet it's important to God that we honor father and mother, that we honor, Honor the, the family structure. Doesn't mean you have to go along with being hurt. Doesn't mean you have to just accept the damage that has been given to you. But carefully, thinking about, well, how do I restrain those expressions of, of anger, those expressions of, of whatever it might be that would come out in a, in a hurtful manner? And I know each one of us is going to be slightly different how we honor our father and mother. But we are, our attention is brought to it here in the text before us today. We've looked at quite a bit in the scriptures so far. I'm gonna take us to the end of our, our time together to a conclusion Beloved, we've looked at these scriptures, and we look at what God has provided for us to to guide us in his word, guide us for life, and it's forced us to ask some questions, and anytime we take a careful look at God's word, it should do that. And it should have also rightly humbled us to think that God would accept a sinful person's worship given given to him. And that's what Noah did. A sinful man brings worship to God, it's pleasing to God, and then he opens up into these covenants. We're all preserved by God in in some way. We haven't been preserved from a worldwide flood, but we have been preserved in life. All of us being sinners should be condemned to death, but yet we're being preserved. And our condemnation is is right when we think of our sin. And think of all that perished in the day of Noah. If you had been prior to the flood, if you weren't in Noah's family, guess where you would have been? Wiped out. But by grace, Noah was saved. And by grace, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we also are saved. That's the whole point of what we're looking at this morning, that We have to be like Noah when he departed the ark, recognize God's grace and to be brought to a place where we can stand before God because of the grace that he has given to us. Putting us in this mindset that the only way we can come to God is because he has made covenant promises and he's fulfilled those covenant promises. He's kept those covenant promises most pointedly through the blood of Jesus his son starting all the way back in Genesis 3:15 saying that there will come the one who will do away with satan from the the seed of the woman the one that will come is Jesus and he is the one that covers us when we put our faith in him one aspect of the of the text i didn't cover was that this is going to continue until God says it's time for all things to end in this current age. He says that there's going to be seed time and harvest. There's going to be winter and summer. He says there's going to be hot and cold and day and night. And what he wants during this time where he's preserving life, where it's continuing in its present stage, is for us to render our lives to him. The scriptures reveal that God being perfectly just provided a covering for us, a covering better than the animal sacrifices, a covering better than a garment simply draped over the body. The heavenly father chose to save people for himself by atoning for the sins of mankind through the blood of Jesus. Sending his own son, the perfect sinless lamb of God, who gave his life as an atonement for sin better and more acceptable than anything, setting the captives free. Jesus is the one who covers our sins, church, making us perfectly acceptable to come before the Father and granting us eternal life. By grace, we have life. Through God's covenant promises, we have a future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have coursed through this this text, as we have looked at how you have worked, it's amazing to think that you would put yourself forward as our covenant partner. Knowing that we have sinfulness in our heart, that it is there from our youth, that we are unfaithful at best you prove yourself faithful over and over again. God, we want to be your people. We want to come before you humbly. We want to submit ourselves to you. And we see that you are willing to accept us not on our merit, but on the merit of your perfect son. So Lord God, we ask that as we come to the time of our service where we partake in the Lord's Supper, that this would Just energize us to live for you this week, knowing that you have granted us life. It's a life that is to be lived. And we have a future, a future that will last for all of eternity because of the covenant promises that you've made. Lord, receive our worship, we pray. Guide us in our way of living for you and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.